to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. I'm your host, Lauren Burke. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. And this week, we are talking about adapting novels for the stage. Now, there are a lot of reasons why a writer might choose to adapt instead of write an original script. In her blog post, Adapt or Perish, Playwright Hilary D. Piano says that one of the most obvious reasons for adapting an existing text is that it's easier to promote. So that makes sense. And that's something that we've talked about quite a bit on this show. She says that, you know, if your source material already has fans, they'll seek out your content on the strength of the original name, even if they've never heard of you personally. She also warns about securing the rights and how, though not impossible, content with active copyright can be harder to secure than something already in the public domain. So surprise, surprise, we've kind of been over some of this before on the show as well. And I kind of, uh, I was reading this and I was wondering actually if uh, Frances Hodgson Burnett is to blame for all of this because before that landmark lawsuit, people were just going wild with unauthorized adaptations, right, Hannah? I mean, you wrote about this for why she wrote. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about Burnett in this lawsuit? Yeah, that's right. So I wrote about Frances Hodgson Burnett's efforts to change the law surrounding unauthorized stage adaptations and the surprisingly dark turn of events that followed her victory in court. She'd had a number of bad experiences with unauthorized stage plays. And then this young guy, uh, Evie Sebum, got in contact with her and asked for permission to adapt Little Lord Fauntleroy. And it kind of like, it was the straw that broke the camel's back, right? She just, Mm -hmm. she snapped. I think partially she could recognize that Sebum asking her for permission was like, it was an empty gesture because he did say, Mm. it doesn't matter if you say yes or just... I'm just going to go ahead. Just want your blessing so, for the for the brochures. Yeah. And just like Beatrix Potter, which I guess that connection only really works if you've read why she wrote. But just like Beatrix Potter, <laughs> she could not bear to see um, just someone else like profiting from her hard work when mm-hmm. she really should be earning royalties from the play. She was a playwright herself. She had experience. It wasn't something that she couldn't do. Mm-hmm. And so she took him to court and... That was a really fun and also very sad story to dig into. And massively important too, right? Like if that case never happened, I wonder if the balance would be tipped. You know, if adapters would be focused way more on like new and popular works. Like we'd see way more Star Wars on stage versus Charles Dickens or Bridgerton, the musical versus Pride and Prejudice, the musical. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, people would just go, yeah, everything's up for for grabs. So why not? Like, why not do CSI on stage? (laughs) That's popular. CSI, the musical. They had all that luck with the Spider-Man musical, didn't they? So (laughs) maybe it's for the best. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) They kept breaking their legs. uh, I really wanted to get tickets to that, too. I wanted to see that really wild one directed by Julie Taymor, but I was not successful in securing uh, tickets because, yeah, because everyone kept getting hurt. <laughs> um, I will say that I do know that unauthorized plays still happen all of the time, 
because two of the best shows I have ever been to are um, one, Point Break. You know that Keanu Reeves movie? I've never seen it. I'm sorry. Oh, my God. Hannah, (laughs) it's about surfing and robbing banks. Like Point Break Live was amazing because every night someone from the audience was like picked to play Johnny Utah, the lead character. So, um, yeah, I went and I was very, very nervous because I was like, please don't pick me, (laughs) please. But I really want to see this show. It's amazing. It's also still running, which is absolutely wild. So when you guys feel safe to go back into the theater, please go see Point Break Live. I can't believe it's still going. I wonder if it's considered like satire is you can I'm get sure, away with parody. So I'm sure it's like it falls under parody. And then also because you have a, like just someone improving Johnny mm-hmm. Utah. It's not like obviously strictly to the text. And also it makes you go back to the original film. Right. I was like, let's watch Point Break and then go <laughs> see, see how it, this. Does it hold up? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. There was also this musical version of Alien that I attended many years ago with puppets. And then also the music was all from Queen. So this was very unauthorized, right? This was like... I feel like you had a fever dream and have confused it with a real... (laughs) It was totally real. And when I called for tickets, I remember like, I feel like in the first run of this, like you had to call someone's house for tickets, like just some dude. It was because it was underground. And when he picked up the phone, he was like, let me tell you something. This play is going to rock your world. Like he like really (laughs) sold it to me. And I was like, I'm literally giving you my credit card number. You don't need to continue selling the show to me. And he was like, no, I need you to prepare to see the best piece of theater you will ever see. Wow. And I have to tell you, like, it's up there. It was fantastic. It was absolutely fantastic. One of the reasons that I think it was so good is that it just felt really dangerous because it did feel like the copyright police could like come in there at any moment and just shut the whole thing down you just felt like you're in a speakeasy you're like they're gonna run in they're gonna like rip the heads off the puppets they like overturn the tables be like get out just arrest people (laughs) just right and left yeah absolutely so i think that was you know that definitely brought it up another level well, if anyone from the Muppets is listening, uh, I think that sounds like a great Muppets movie. So. Please do it. <laughs> Including the bit where everyone gets arrested <laughs> in the audience. Like you have that makes it. You haven't really lived too until you've seen like a puppet do like that chest burster scene and then like start like screaming and singing, We will rock you. Like <laughs> Gotta love the Chicago theater scene. And speaking of the Chicago (laughs) theater scene, today we are going to talk to someone from one of my favorite theater companies, uh, which actually specializes in adaptation. So Christina Calvert is an ensemble member of Chicago's Lifeline Theater. Christina has written over a dozen theatrical adaptations which have been performed nationally and internationally, including... Miss Bunkle's book, Wuthering Heights, A Room with a View, Angus Thongs and Full Frontal Snogging, Jane Eyre and Pride and Prejudice. So I went to Northwestern University and uh, they had um, what really I think was one of the very 
very original programs in the United States. They called it interpretation. And it was taking books and poems and putting them on stage. So um, myself and a group of our of, of friends were all exposed to that from very early on. And then some of these friends went and in 1982, I believe, they started Lifeline Theater. And originally it was, um, it was about British, hot British plays because <laughs> they were like, hey, you know, we all can do great accents and we want to act in these. And so we want to be in the, the, the latest hot British play. But it's hard to get the rights to the latest hot British play. Everybody wants them. And um, I, I had been working with them. Uh, they were um, Smeryl Friedman, Steve Totland, Kathy Sills, Suzanne Plunkett. Um, and I had been working with them just kind of on and off, uh, you know, helping them with a benefit or, you know, every, every so often uh, coming to meetings or whatever. And um, I, I had said to them, I think we should do, we should, you know, go explore. I mean, because it wasn't just a problem of getting rights. It was also a problem of getting people to come to the theater. And um, when I did theater in the 80s, it was not uncommon to have like <laughs> more people on stage than we're in the audience. So there's sort of this dual um, problem of getting access and then also getting folks in. And I was like, I've always wanted to do Pride and Prejudice. Um, let's do that. And so we did. And uh, that was in 86. And it was, um, you know, I think it, it succeeded because of its novelty, because really there hadn't been too much that was like that before. Arnie April had done, I think it was Tale of Two Cities maybe the year before. But uh, the Jeff Committee, which is the local awards show here in Chicago, hadn't really seen much of this. And so they were very excited and impressed. <laughs> so we were lucky because we were in on the wave. You know, now almost every theater does adaptations, but, but we were among the first. And so, so when we had the success with this, it kind of made, made us think, well, we should do more of these. And so we did. And then I think it was maybe in the late 80s or the early 90s, we decided that, that we were going to be a company that was based on, on um, the production of literary works. Uh, we do original work as well, but um, uh, primarily adaptations, primarily fiction, and, um, and, uh, but we do do uh, nonfiction as well. And that was kind of, that kind of set us on the road to where Lifeline Theater is today. So that name recognition for those those books turning to play like that gets with the people in. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a double-edged sword too because mm -hmm. you you start by producing things like we did A Wrinkle in Time very early on. We did Lion Witch in the Wardrobe very early on, and uh, you know you start to get pegged, or or and then Jane Eyre and Pride and Prejudice. Are you the romantic theater? Are you the sure. uh, <laughs> are you the the family theater? You know, so it's right. kind of it's a double-edged sword in that way as well. But, um, you know, as we've grown and the company has been around for, yeah, over 30 years, 35, something like that, um, we figured out the way to kind of reach out and, and define ourselves for our Rogers Park community and the greater Chicago area as well. How do you um, decide what to adapt? That's gotta be a tough decision, I would think. I mean, that particular piece, you know, Pride and Prejudice, everyone, I mean, not everyone loves it, but it is 
I would say the most accessible and popular of all of her novels. And I read it when I was, you know, like 12 mm-hmm. and I reread it all the time. So mm-hmm. to me, it was, that was like natural as, as, as anything just to say, yeah, this is, this is what I, this is what I would like to spend some time with because you are, right. you know, that's, it's a commitment uh, for us at Lifeline, a commitment of, it can be, you know, two years. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't like that at the beginning. It was a little more off the cuff, but but sure. it can be a long time. And so you have to really love a text and want to dive into it deeply. Um, you know, same for me for Jane Era. That was another similar kind of situation. But some of the things, um, you know, just in my own reading, I, I uncover them. Um, uh, you were emailing me about Miss Bunkle's book, which was just such a yeah. delightful piece to work with. That we got was a suggestion, um, not personal, a personal suggestion, but Lori Nataro, who is um, a great woman, uh, a comedian slash, you know, essayist. Um, and uh, she had she had written an article that was about all the books that you should, if you love blah, 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 you should be reading blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And Miss Bunkle was one of those was one of those books. And I've always really liked Lori's writing and certainly respect her, her, her uh, literary knowledge. So, so that's where we discovered that. I'm so bummed I missed it. That book is so funny. And I remember reading it, I want to say like maybe four or five years ago and just going, oh my God, why isn't this like a mini series? This is, because it does feel like it would translate easily visually because yeah. it's so funny. And, and it's, it's just, just a classic yeah. story, right? Like she's so, just so sweet and so put upon and you just yeah. want her to win. You want her to win so much. And uh, yeah, yeah, that that was a great show at Lifeline. We had many ensemble members in it. Um, you know, that was, it was a pleasure. Man, someone adapt that. I want a period drama of that. <laughs> oh, the costumes were great. <laughs> oh my God, be great. Is there something um, that you would like to adapt, but you just don't see it translating visually? You know, books that are very uh, interior, like if it's a lot about what's going on in, in people's heads, it's always more of a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, Chris Hainsworth did an adaptation of a novel called Hunger. I remember when we were all reading it and when we were discussing it as a group about whether we wanted to um, to do it. It takes place in, in Russia, uh, in the siege of Stalingrad. I don't know, some, <laughs> some Russian city mm-hmm. being sieged upon. And um, we were like, God, Chris, there's there isn't a line of dialogue in this. Like, what are you gonna do? Yeah. And uh, he wrote it. He wrote he wrote every single piece of dialogue, pretty much. I would say in that from that book, it was a great show. Uh, but that is a challenge, you know. Then you mm-hmm. are then you are really super interpreting what the intent is and giving voice to people that have no voice. And uh, it's that's that's always difficult. Um, yeah, and then things that are, I mean, at Lifeline, the the um, our motto is big stories up close because mm-hmm. we've never shied away from things like Left Hand of Darkness, for example, and creating that alien world. Um, mm-hmm. You know, those kinds of things we've we've always done. So I don't actually see those as as big challenges as maybe maybe they people might think 
mm-hmm. feel like if there's if there are compelling characters and it's compelling dialogue, that is a is a is an easy thing. Not to say that that you know people shouldn't dive in and try to do things that are that are um, interior, because I've actually seen many great pieces like that as well. But mm-hmm. it is it's more of a challenge. Will you tell us, well, we're going to talk about Pride and Prejudice and Jane Eyre, I'd like to talk about as well, but what were some of the, the, the pains and the joys? Like what worked really well, let's say, let's start with, with both of those. Well, of course, Pride and Prejudice and Jane Eyre, they're, there's those novels have glittering, glittering dialogue. I mean, it is yeah. just brilliant. And so um, there's a lot of gold to mine there. And, um, and then the pain is like, what do I leave out? Like, what am I right. cutting? How am I, you know, how am I shaping this? And um, so, but, but, you know, at the very beginning, when I first did Pride and Prejudice, I really, I was not, I was not very artistic about it. I was just like, I'm going to put this story on stage. And it was just like, Bleh. it just was kind of, mm-hmm. kind of there. And I remember um, it was like three hours long and <laughs> it was so long. I, I remember being really upset on Tech Week because Michael Greif was the famous director and a, a friend of um, Merrill Friedman's who was directing it. Uh, he was a Northwestern um, alum as well. And he came and saw the show and they were just up in the back, like going, talking about how long it was. And I should, you know, and then Meryl, you know, came down and gave me the terrible sad news that I needed to cut whatever it was, 15 minutes or whatever it was out of there. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember being very upset about that uh, in this first go around. But I realized um, after, you know, the many, the sh- many shows we've done at Lifeline, it's, that's important. It's important to find the core of it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, a book can be about many things and take you on all kinds of journeys and comment on all kinds of things. But when you have two and a half hours, or even better, two and two hour 15, mm-hmm. you want to, you want to find like the heart of what the book is speaking about that also speaks strongly to you. So you look at it and say, well, I could talk about this, or I could talk about this, or I could focus on that. But you say, no, this is the thing I want to make people think about as they're looking at this work. Mm -hmm. And at Lifeline, we're very, very faithful to the books. We don't try to change them or add new characters or, you know, change the dialogue. Like that's always a great disappointment to me when I see uh, an Austin and the dialogue is, I, I go, that's not in the book. What, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing this? There's so much good dialogue. What are you doing? Um, but we don't do that, but we do try to pare it down to like a artistic essence. So at the beginning with Pride and Prejudice, all I did was put the book on stage, but and as I continue to work on um, the versions of it, I did a version that was at Stratford, Jeanette, Lambermont was the director and she was very, she taught me so much about honing down and what to think about. And, and so eventually it became a, a, a play about money, which of course is always core to Austin, you know, sense and sensibility, that great, great opening scene of what's her name, Fanny, just like, like 
blustering John down, down, down. They don't need to have any money. Oh, they don't need to have any venison and game on their table. They don't need this. They don't need that. It just gets them to, to give them nothing, essentially, except the piano that was already always there. And I mean, Dawson feels feels money very deeply. And then it, it became a play about that and, and also a play about gossip and judgment that, that people were always looking at you and measuring you and thinking about how much you made and thinking about the stockings you're wearing and what you're buying at the market. And so that to me helped me hone everything. I knew what scenes I wanted to put in. I knew what dialogue I wanted to focus on. I knew, I knew, um, you know, lots of times when you don't have a narrator, you need a narrative structure to kind of get you from place to place or time to time, you know, so that we understand times past and things like that. You don't have the tools that a movie gives you, you know, of fading away. <laughs> that, right, right. So you, you know, if you, these kinds of things, finding the heart of what it is that you want to say about a particular text can really help you in, in all of the decisions for adapting for the stage. Mm -hmm. Is there something in any play that you've done, uh, is there something that you had to leave out that you really still think about or that you really missed? Gosh. Yeah, I mean, there were some great Lydia scenes in um, Pride and Prejudice. I think, um, you know, for and for Jane Eyre as well, uh, the whole first, all, all of her youth that yeah. was condensed into a, like a eight minute montage. And um, that, so that of course, you know, breaks your heart because mm -hmm. those are some of the most affecting scenes in the entire world piece <laughs> but, yeah there's just a lot of it <laughs> there is a lot of it yeah it goes on and on her unhappy state <laughs> <laughs> well then there's like yeah I, I believe i saw your jane Eyre. i believe you had some good stuff with the red room if i remember correctly right it was the last one we did which i thought was the most focused was about um uh brocklehurst and aunt reed and helen kind of following her and clinging to her and keeping her from doing the things that she needed to do. And she had to kind of put all those ghosts to rest before she could become a full actualized human being. And the red room was, was one of the things, the echoes that kept coming back because that was where she had seen the ghost of her uncle. And she was so freaked out because <laughs> there's yeah. that whole spiritual, you know, eerie thing that, mm -hmm. I mean, if you want to talk about the difference between Austin and um, Bronte's, it's sure. Oh yeah. That's a big, big part of it is that passionate, wild, you know, ghostly thing that hangs over people, mm -hmm. their work. I loved that, that version actually. Um, what was at the heart of that piece, actually, the Jane Eyre adaptation that you felt? It was that, so I think when I was a child reading the book, I just thought Jane was the best thing ever. And she was a truth teller and she was um, wild and passionate. And But when I got older and I reread the book, I thought that she's damaged. 
And she is not, I mean, she does, she does speak the truth to Rochester. I'm no bird, no net ensnares me. I mean, she, she, but, but it's almost like, like he has to goad her to do that. I mean, their relationship Mm -hmm. is very strange and she is very strange. Um, It's not, it's not healthy. And so I think, um, I think that was what it was about was trying to take her arc of, of being this, this person who had been so repressed and, and put down and squashed, you know, and, and letting her find her voice. And a part of that is Rochester, but that's not all of it. You know, finding the family, being Mm -hmm. able to reject a life of self-sacrifice when, um, Sinjin asks her at the end, come with me, come be my help meet. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I won't love you, but then you'll die soon. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you will have a fulfilling life. And she says, no, you know, I, I yeah. mean, that's, that's really, and it was a very um, brave thing to do uh, in that time period as well, because I think, mm-hmm. I think her readers, her contemporary readers would have seen that as kind of like, Oh, she should go. She should save, become a missionary and save the heathen and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. She said, that is not, it's not what I'm going to do. And she becomes a full person. I think as there's a real sense of um, her power mm-hmm. by the end. So we have um, a lot of writers that listen to the show. And actually we have quite a few like actors who produce their own pieces and whatnot. So do you have, um, any good writing advice for them? I know that's a broad question. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's like something that you think about all the time or just, you know. I mean, it's hard. I'm more of an interpreter than a writer. I have to be, be honest. <laughs> I mean, I have written things. That's but... interesting. That's important though. That's really interesting. Yeah. I'm, I love the, the texts and I love delving into them and thinking about you know, what is, what does this mean to me? But to create those kinds of characters, I think is a whole other ball game. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we're just before the, the quarantine started, we were getting ready to uh, start rehearsal on uh, Loki, the end of the world tour, which is a musical, um, a musical about, about uh, the Norse gods. And mm-hmm. that, that's, that's been one of, I mean, I, you know, I, of course, do my own writing, but that has been the most concerted original writing I've done in quite some time. And Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, my God, this is so hard. How do you know what's right? How do you know if it's too long? How do you know what the characters do? Oh, my gosh, what should they say? Because when you have Mm -hmm. a book, you have a map. I mean, I would say for any writer, what would be good to have? It's great to have a pod. It's great to have people that you can... um, uh, read your stuff uh, too, and get reactions. I mean, that honestly. So, Lifeline is an ensemble of um, of writers and directors and designers and uh, actors, but we all come together to choose a season, and we all come together to critique each other's work. So, I am blessed that I have these um, collaborators who, you know, it's hard to be honest about people's stuff and to, to give them kindly, (laughs) you know, give them the truth about things 
or or tell them what you're seeing. Maybe it's not the truth, it's but it's your truth about how you're interacting with their material. And it's it's such a, a great thing to have. And um that to me is one of one of the most valuable um valuable tools I have at Lifeline is these people, you know, we have a language that we speak when we're looking at each other's work mm-hmm. and a, a way of talking about it that hopefully allows you to. I mean, I've, I've changed, I've changed scenes. I've changed intent. I've, I've changed mm-hmm. so many things because of what folks have told me. So I think of them as collaborators and all the work that I do. And that's a great thing to find. I think it's, I'm glad you brought that up too, because, um, I think people don't realize with uh, all the things that go into, you know, into comics, into stage, into, you know, screen adaptations, that it is so much of a collaborative process. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I see so many reviews where um, people are talking about it as if it's like a single vision. Right. (laughs) And you're like, oh, there's there's so many factors at play here. Um, Yeah, I don't think that the director has that much control or the executive producer has that much control or that actor has that much control. I feel like there's like a lot of people who are bouncing off of each other or working with each other and different things. Yeah. And you have to not be afraid of that. I think you can always say no, but first you Mm -hmm. should say yes. Like, tell me what you think. Let, let me hear, let me hear your idea. Even, even if it can, that can be scary, I think, Mm -hmm. but, but, but you have so much to gain. And you can always you can always think about it and decide not to do it. Yeah, that is true. No, I'm really glad that you brought that up. Um, is there anything that's coming up with Lifeline that you can tell us about, or do you want to just direct everyone to the website? Uh, well, there's tons of stuff on the website, but we mm-hmm. do have. Um, in March 11th, we're releasing uh, one of our audio dramas. It is um, a a reprise of Miss Holmes, which is the Sherlock Holmes story told from the point of view of Sherlock being a woman. Oh, cool. And also um, uh, Dr. Watson is a woman. So it's a very, very interesting piece. Um, Well, speaking of basically, yeah, Chris Walsh wrote that from scratch. (laughs) And it's really funny and interesting. And it really delves into the issues of women um, you know, in Victorian England who are trying to make their mark. So mm-hmm. it's a very, it's, it's got, it's great because it's got all the, the Holmesian tropes, but at the same time, it's a very, very different world that mm-hmm. um, Sherlock lives in. So I would, that, that's coming up. And then um, on uh, just, just after that, we have Click Clack Moo, Cows That Type, which is a really cute kids show. It's a musical. I'm not sure how they're going to do that. Um, <laughs> I'm excited to see it. And then after that in May, mid-May is Sense and Sensibility. So um, we've got a lot of things coming up. If you like to listen to um, audio dramas, as I'm guessing your audience does. And we are back. Are we back? Are you good? We're back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we are back. Uh, I loved hearing about how Lifeline Theatre was like, oh, we're going to do these amazing contemporary plays and then couldn't get the rights to them. So just had to like pivot, shift focus Mm -hmm. and just change over to the classics. And that I really liked the conversation about how that can be a double edged sword because people then start to like define you by the texts you're choosing. Yeah. You know, 
Um, and also when Christina said that she was more of an interpreter than a writer too, um, just like the whole notion of digging into an existing work and pulling out the relatable threads is something that you and I definitely talk about in terms of adaptation on screen, on stage, all over it, you know, it doesn't, yeah, yeah. just like what's the heart of it and how do you, yeah, how do you translate that to audiences? I love that. It's really fascinating to hear adapters talk about their work. Like, you're right. I love the way that she described herself as an interpreter of the text. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this video that was produced by the National Theater where playwrights like Patrick Marber, Nick Deer, and Sally Cookson talk about their own experiences bringing well-known texts to the stage. And they sort of refer to themselves, all, like they're all over the place. They're like, we're editors, mm-hmm. we're plunderers, you know, all we're, we're writers. We're actually like sort of creating new bits of the text. It's just kind of all over the place. It's messy work, but it's like interesting work, I think. Um, Sally Cookson, who adapted Jane Eyre, started the script by lifting all of the dialogue from the book and then like mm. used that as a working script. Except that ended up being super boring or, as she said, deathly dull. And (laughs) then they ended up like getting rid of that script and then just had the whole company sort of act out scenes using their own words just to get down like what those scenes meant to them. And that sort Mm. of became the working script. And I thought that was like super, super interesting. Like, honestly, I could watch a four hour documentary about that, that sort of like group interpretation of yeah. Jane Eyre, that that was great. Um, and by the way, some of you will remember that Sally Cookson, Jane Eyre, because we did do a watch along last year when the National Theater streamed um, those weekly plays during lockdown. And also, FYI, you can um, pay, I think for the Americans, it's like twelve ninety nine a month. And for those of you in the UK, I think it's like 9 99 a month and you can actually stream like all of those yeah but you can't get an app for your playstation so just be warned that's like a laptop situation (laughs) (laughs) is it bad that the only thing i can remember well i can remember it but like Mm -hmm. specifically that i think about with that adaptation of jane eyre is just like the man running around like woofing (laughs) i wasn't about it i didn't like that but the rest of it Maybe that wasn't even in the script. And then he just like interpreted it into (laughs) existence. So I've tried to research this. I could be getting like two different Jane Eyre adaptations confused. But I feel like that Sally Cookson one started at Bristol Old Vic and they did Mm. two nights of it. They broke it down into two sections. I can't find oh, evidence wow. of this. I'm like, why do I think this? I don't know. But, I feel um, like they've done that with something else recently as well. Yeah, I say I, recently, two years ago. Two pre, years ago, yeah. Pre-pando, <laughs> yeah. Um, what's interesting about the Sally Cookson adaptation is that she really did seem to want like the whole book. Mm-hmm. And she really seemed to struggle with like condensing Jane Eyre because Jane Eyre covers such a, I mean, it's her life. It's hard. Covers, it's a lot of, <laughs> That's a it's hard a lot of material. Um, but I do feel like two nights of Jane Eyre and like I'm the audience for that, right? Like I love mm. theater. I love Jane Eyre. 
tough. It's still a tough sell. (laughs) (laughs) I think. For me, it's still a tough sell. I want you to, I want you to condense that bad boy because I got stuff going on. Yeah, don't let the dog comment trick you. <laughs> I did think it was good. So in the in the National Theatre video, I really liked when I think Nick Deer was talking about dialogue and how he doesn't want dialogue to sound really modern. He wants it to sound like it belongs to the time that it's in. So in his case, it was 1818. Because mm-hmm. he did, he was the one that did Frankenstein. He did Frankenstein, he yeah. He did Frankenstein. And so, yeah, I was really interested listening to, and I guess the same thing happened with Sally Cookson when she just took the dialogue out and then was like, this isn't, this isn't working. Like it's just working. taking that and putting it on, onto the stage isn't going to be it. So you're kind of in this space where you're playing with the world of the text, the world that we live in. And then the stage is like that in-between space, which is both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and they all kept talking about how painful and radical it felt yeah. making the edits that they were making. And I think that was really interesting because you do kind of, when we talk about adaptations, I think it can be very easy to say like, they don't understand it or they don't care or they don't get it or anything like that. And that just kind of like they're disregarding the original, but they're not. It's just they're understanding the limitations that the stage represents, uh, translating that setting, how many cast members you have will change it, how much time mm-hmm. you have is the biggest one. Um, Sally Cookson said that in an ideal world, you would create a 12 hour piece of theater and that's not possible it sounds like she really tried it sounds like <laughs> she, she really tried. tried i kind of like what nick deer was saying too yeah with like i want it to have the flavor of 1818 mm. the flavor of mary shelley's sort of dialogue but it might be a little too much to pull to some direct quotes mm-hmm. <laughs> it's funny as well because when i was watching the video um like i always talk about Patrick Marber when talking about adaptations because his play Closer um that was originally written in 1997 and then almost 10 years later he wrote the film version which was Mm -hmm. released in cinemas and I remember um I think we read it in school and watched the film maybe like a level time and so for me as a writer that I was like oh like adaptation isn't it's not just one person taking someone else's thing and ruining it it's right it's a thing that you can do to your own work and that like I had to learn that you know like that change is not an automatic portrayal of the author because I grew up in a family of readers and so we watched a lot of stuff that was adapted from books that we read and my mum and I still don't agree on this she is 100% a purist and she's like I just want this to be as close a telling of the book as possible. Whereas I'm like less, I'm just less interested in that. I just want to see something new, like a new take that maybe I hadn't thought of or exploring the point of view of characters who maybe are overlooked in the book or just like, just something different. I just don't Mm -hmm. really, it doesn't, the book is still on the shelf, which is like my way of thinking. It doesn't, the original is still there. But um, (laughs) I do... I do have more of an issue when adaptations like flatten something to just the most superficial reading Mm -hmm. of it more than I do with people adding a scene that I think is trying to bring something out, right? Like I'd rather have new scenes 
and a better idea of the book than I had before than just the book but like dull like with no depth to it I'm in the same spot that you are so I can understand sort of like with a new a brand new material people are like I just want to see this book the way that I've seen it like in my head Mm -hmm. sort of and it's never been done before so I can understand with a new project like why that would work but like with something like Jane Austen, Jane Eyre, all of these classics that are being done time and time and time again. Like, I just don't want to see the same thing over and over and over again. I would still say, though, even with stuff that hasn't been done before, like, I'm super stubborn. And so when I was having that conversation with my mom, like, I wrote a 210 page screen adaptation of our favorite fantasy novel. And then she was like, you, you could never, like, remove any supporting characters. And I was like, I can... I take out whoever I want. I rewrote mm-hmm. it like three times with different people removed. Didn't like show it to my mum, but I just wanted to like, I guess, prove <laughs> I'm to so myself. Disappointed. No, yeah, I was like, now read this. Now like, read this. She's like, you can't take out the talking cat. And I was like, I take out whoever I want, like a sniper. I was like, <laughs> no one is safe, mum. I'll get rid of the main character. <laughs> Watch me. I didn't. That's maybe too far. But I just. Yeah, it was a good exercise. I didn't have a lot of friends, I guess. So I just did, I just did that for six months. It's a very good exercise. Mm. Really good exercise if you if you have a strong opinion about adaptations, try writing your own. Yeah, Bonnets listeners, clear your schedules mm. this weekend. And then just write an adaptation of your favorite book. Let us know. And then how rewrite it, goes. it and kill someone. <laughs> Emma without Emma. Ooh, let us know how it goes. Interesting. That would be interesting. Yeah, now I'm like, ooh. Hmm. <laughs> Emma murder mystery. Who killed Emma? So anyway, anyway, I will be sure to share that National Theater video on our Facebook page for anyone who is interested. And um, hey, if you have written your own adaptation, please do in the comments for this episode. Um on Facebook, let us know, like, what did you struggle with? What did you cut? Who did you kill? I want to know. And uh, yeah, so that's it for this week. But be sure to come back for the next episode in our seasons on at in our season on adaptation. We will be talking with the writer director Sharmini Kumar about her work diversifying Austin for the stage, as well as discussing Emma Thompson's sense and sensibility. Yes, I'm very excited. Specifically the production diaries. Yes. Well, we'll also be talking about the movie a little bit because, I mean, I guess you can't talk about it without talking about the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In the meantime... You can find out more about Christina's work and Lifeline Theater at lifelinetheater.com. That's L-I-F-E-L-I-N-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.com. And Hannah, if the good people want to keep up with us, where should they go? You can find us, as always, on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us, bonnetsatdawn at gmail.com. You can join our wonderful Facebook community by searching for Bonnets at Dawn on, you guessed it, Facebook. And you can order our book, Why She Wrote, from all major retailers, including our favourite, bookshop.org. Bye.